Welcome to episode 37 of The History Files. I'm Gordon Fry. And I'm Nancy Fry. And today we're going to do something a little different because this is our wrap-up of the year of 2015. Yeah. Uh, so what we're going to do, rather than having a specific main topic, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about things that happened in years of 15. Yeah. Starting in 15. In A.D. 15, the Julian calendar was pretty much started and in use. Yeah. Yeah, when we said we were going to do years of 15, we weren't kidding. We weren't kidding. So starting with 15. Starting with year 15. A hundred years later, in A.D. 115, Alexandria in Egypt is destroyed during the Jewish-Greek civil wars, and future librarians of the world were very sad. Yes. Jumping forward to 315, crucifixion is abolished as punishment in the Roman Empire. In 615, Muhammad and his Muslim followers begin to immigrate to the Aksumite Empire. That's down uh, by Ethiopia. He founds a small colony there under the protection of the Christian Ethiopian emperor, Ashama ibn Abjar. In 815, Khrafna Fluki. Uh, I'm I'm messing this up. Vilkatarsen? Vilkatarsen. Sorry, Brecky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, sorry. Us Anglo-Saxons can't it'll, pronounce It'll be this. in the notes. <laughs> Sets out from his uh, from the Faroe Islands and discovers Iceland. Documented later in the Landnab... Landnabok. Landnabok. Sorry, I can speak German, not Icelandic. Um, approximate date. In a bit. In August of 1015, Knut the Great of Denmark launches an invasion of England. Earl Eric Hakarnsen uh, outlawed berserkers in Norway. Oh no, no more berserkers. And also in 1015, Olaf Haraldsson declares himself king of Norway. Good old King Olaf. In 1115, September 14th, Roger of Salerno's crusaders routed the Seljuk Turks under the um, Bursuk ibn Bursuk bin. bin. What did I say? Ibn, ibn. Oh, bin Bursuk at the Battle of Sarmin in Syria. Now we jump up to 1215. Let me actually say this. Do oh, this sure. One, okay? I will hand it over to Gordon because Gordon's our, our history guy. So in 1215, King John, interestingly enough, there's never been another King John. It's never King John the first. It's just King John because huh. uh, nobody wanted to follow that one. In his attempts to raise funds to reclaim his lands in France, lost to the King of France, uh, he angered his barons. And this results in the First Barons' War. John is defeated at the Battle of Runnymede and is forced to sign the Magna Carta, or Great Charter, which is the first document in England specifying people's rights in writing. 
Although it is definitely slanted to the side of the nobility, it also enshrines the concept of habeas corpus, by which a person cannot be arrested or imprisoned without legal charges into the English common law. It also established that Englishmen cannot be taxed by the crown, but rather the crown presents its financial needs to the House of Commons, which then proceeds to levy taxes upon its own members, which it represents. Upon both these precedents, uh, and their being flaunted by the crown's representatives in the American colonies, lay the Declaration of Independence of the 13 English colonies, which formed the United States. Wow. And I just want to point out that was... 800 years ago. So, pretty cool stuff. Basically laying the foundations for the United States of America. Absolutely. We're following right in the uh, right in the path that was laid down in eight, in 1215. Hmm. In 1315, the beginning of the Great Famine happens. This was 1315 to 1317. This marks the end of the medieval warm period, climate-wise, which is a, per- a period of comparative- comparatively warm weather in Northern Europe. Warm enough that, in fact, there were vineyards in Northern England, and the population shot up because of this This. Um, agricultural uh, well, benign conditions for agriculture. Yeah, it was, uh, you could grow, had longer growing seasons mm-hmm. and uh, higher, you grow things in higher latitudes. Yeah, it was it was amazing. Then, uh, then we had heavy rains and cooler temperatures lasting for several years, perhaps due to a volcanic eruption in New Zealand or perhaps due to other considerations. Crops failed for several years straight and somewhere between 10 to 25 percent of the population of Europe from Britain to Russia perished. This was some 30 years prior to the arrival of the Black Plague which carried off another third of the entire population. So there was a lot of people dying in the uh, in the 1300s. It was a pretty nasty period to be alive. Yeah. In 1415, on October 25th, was the Battle of Agincourt, where Henry V of England defeated the flower of the French chivalry in yet another contest between the English longbowmen and the French heavy cavalry. Yet again, as in Battle of Poitiers and the Battle of Crecy, uh, the the French nobility chose to charge in on unarmored horses against the English, who were set in a defensive position. And yet again, the longbows of the English yeomen slaughtered the French. It took another generation before the French figured out how to deal with this English system of archers and dismounted men-at-arms, and that was by using their superior artillery to dislodge the English and force them into movement, at which point the French heavy cavalry would move in for the kill. In 1515, September 25th, the last conflict between France and the Swiss Confederacy, young King Francis I of France leads his army made up of magnificent heavy cavalry. By now, they're on armored horses, lessons learned from Agincourt, <laughs> and a superb train of artillery, along with some half-hearted German land connects who had been hired in lieu of the Swiss and his Venetian allies. They were defending themselves against the Swiss, who were dabbling in Italian politics at the time and had decided to ignore the treaty they had just made with Francis and attack him with their columns of pikemen. In this battle, the French perfected their technique of using their heavy cavalry to pin down their opponent in a static, close formation of pikes and then use their excellent bronze artillery to mow them down. Despite exceptionally heavy losses, the Swiss marched off under perfect discipline to their mountain fastnesses and were persuaded to sign a treaty of perpetual peace, which actually turned out to be 
just such a peace. Yes, oddly enough, then that from that point onward, the French and the Swiss were at peace. The, I guess the Swiss were persuaded that the French actually meant business, and the French were persuaded that the Swiss meant business, and eh, best left alone. As a matter of fact, we can all just get along. Yes. 1615, Samuel de Champlain engages in a battle between the Wyandotte allies and members of the Iroquois Confederacy, where he and his French companions shot several Iroquois warriors. The Iroquois held this against the French colonists from that point forward and allied themselves first with the Dutch, then later with English colonists in their own conflict with the French in the wars of imperial expansion of the 17th and 18th centuries. 1715, the rising of 715 in Scotland in the name of James Edward Stuart, the old pretender, to the Stuart claim on the throne of England. Scotland and Ireland begins. This is in response to the death of the last Stuart monarch, Queen Anne, half-sister to James Edward, and the ascension of the elector of Hanover, George I, to the throne. The reason for George coming to the throne was the fact that James Edward was a Catholic, and Parliament had been passed that, or had passed... Law, laws, passed yes. law that no Catholic could sit the throne. Since Scotland had become united with England under the Act of Union in 1707, this went for both England and Scotland, as well as Ireland. 1815, Waterloo. The Duke of Wellington and, the Marsh- and Marshal von Blücher combined their armies just in time to defeat Napoleon in his last hundred days. Though exiled from Elba in 1814, Napoleon Bonaparte had returned to reclaim his empire and sought to defeat the Allied armies of Britain, Prussia, Austria, and Russia. In Wellington's best day and Napoleon's worst, Wellington gained a victory that he called a close-run thing. 1915. World War I enters its second year, and trench warfare becomes the norm on the Western Front. Turkey and Bulgaria enter the war on the side of the Central Powers, while Italy enters the war on the side of Britain, France, and Russia. It would not end for another three years of slaughter and an estimated total of some 20 million deaths. Oh... Yeah. Lots of death, destruction, and despair throughout. Yeah, unfortunately, history, if you're going to study history, you're going to study a lot of death and destruction. Sad to say. And there it is. So that's that's our, our quickie sort of whirlwind tour through history of uh, the 15s. I don't know. It's hard to do the BC 15s because it's written written history only goes back (laughs) so far. Oh, we could do it, but it's like they didn't consider them 15s. Yeah, my cuneiform (laughs) is kind of rusty, so... Yeah, Yeah, and I'm not so hot on the, you know, either Sanskrit or hieroglyphics. So we'll just stick with that for now. So there it is. This is Hollywood. Sporting cast of thousands. What else came of my trip to the library? Romance, education, entertainment. Well, just briefly uh, for our media section, I just want to mention another podcast, actually, and that is Dan Snow's History Hit. It's a podcast that he started, I don't know, a few months ago, sometime sometime in the middle of this year. Um, He is... uh, a bit of a history pundit has done some television specials and things for the BBC and his father was a newscaster and a historian so he he comes to it kind of naturally 
And it's a really good podcast. Um, they vary in length. Usually they're around, they can be anywhere from 15 minutes to a half an hour. And he will do everything from give you a running commentary from the cockpit of an airplane, you know, a historical really airplane, cool, yes. to uh, um, the deck of a ship, to... Uh, um, I don't know. It's it's just wonderful. It's he does a, he does a really good job. He's enthusiastic, and he's uh, it's kind of broad ranging. He's a history generalist, but he's definitely a military history fan. So we get a lot of that. And he I will bring in some really fun guests. And in fact, just uh, last week or the week before, he had someone on who specialized in Star Wars and was talking about the history of Star Wars and how the different historical influences on the on the Star Wars universe and that, that whole world. So I, I highly recommend it. There will be a link in the show notes. Well, he also had a, a background, very good background, on uh, Middle Eastern uh, religious politics. Oh, and whatnot. yes, yeah. And Just really, really good stuff. Really, really good. That was gives with Tom you, Holland. Uh, yeah, it gives you a really good idea of what's going on so good stuff i recommend it i seem to remember you're not too familiar with colonel colt revolver you want the shotgun no i prefer the thompson so as you might have guessed from our little sound bumper there it's time for another edition of gordon's gun closet and what are we talking about today today i want to talk about the winchester model 1907 slr slr stands for self-loading rifle Self-loading. Self-loading. It sucks the ammunition out of your ammo box and right into the magazine. <laughs> Almost. The 1907 Winchester was actually a slight modification uh, from its earlier rendition of the model 1905. Both are self-loading rifles, which means they are semi-automatic. They, uh, When you pull the trigger, it uh, fires and then uh, loads a new one for you automatically. So Wait. it's a, a self-loader. Uh, and when when was this developed again? Well, the first one was 1905. Oh, wow. Uh, it was in 35 Winchester. It was decided that was a little bit underpowered, so they upgunned it a little bit, as it were, in 1907 to the uh, 351 or 0.351 inch uh, Winchester. Is that the diameter That's, of the projectile? Correct. The diameter, which is effectively nine millimeter. Okay. Uh, it's the power of it is approximately the same as a 357 Magnum pistol cartridge fired out of a carbine, uh, out of a 16 inch barrel. Okay, so, so it's it's fairly a, powerful. And carbine, for those of you who don't know, is, is uh, shorter than a rifle. Short barreled rifle. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's a uh, fairly widespread popularity. It was used by uh, police. It was used by uh, uh, prison guards. It was used by hunters to some degree. It wasn't, it, uh, it doesn't have a reputation for fine accuracy, uh, nor a whole lot of power. So it was primarily used for fairly short range shooting, uh, like in woods against fairly small game, like, you know, smaller deer and whatnot. It seems to have gained a fair following in South America, oddly enough, for shooting jaguars. Uh, mostly because huh. it had, you didn't have to do anything to reload it. You just pulled the trigger and went pop, pop, pop. As each time you pull the trigger, it would fire. Hmm. Uh, so you don't need to rack a bolt or pump a thing or or exactly. lever a lever. It just you just pull the trigger, putting stuff it, in the in the breech. Exactly. So each time you pull the trigger, it fires. It doesn't fire a lot of rounds when you pull the trigger. It just fires one. Right. Um, because well, that was what was felt to be. 
you know, that was all you needed. How many rounds are in the magazine? The magazine as it, um, that was issued with it, that came with it when you bought it, is a five-round magazine. However, uh, in during World War One, so only, you know, a few years after it, this was introduced, uh, the French army decided to experiment with them, and they bought a number of them to issue, oddly enough, to their, um, their air corps. Oh. They issued them to first to observers so they could shoot at the other uh, observers in German airplanes. Uh, this was before they started putting machine guns. So they had a carbine up in the airplane? Correct. <laughs> they would carry this. The observer would carry this because, first off, they were carrying pistols and well, shooting at each other. True. And that was just, they decided that was fairly ridiculous because there was... What were the odds of yeah, actually hitting somebody? Exactly. And so they bought a bunch of these and started issuing them out to their air corps. Uh, but they quickly decided that the five-round magazine just wasn't enough. So they started buying first 10-round and then eventually 20-round magazines. Um once they started putting machine guns on airplanes, the need for this little self-loading carbine became redundant. And so they started issuing them in the trenches or just trying them out oh. in the trenches. The, um, the French were very uh, enamored with it. They thought it was a fine little rifle. Uh, it's, it's not exactly light. It probably weighs nine pounds, but it's very handy, much and, shorter than the issue rifle. And this is a Winchester, so it's made in the U.S.? Made in the United States. And France was buying them. Correct. Huh. Uh, the United States was definitely the arsenal of democracy and also totalitarianism because the United States in World War One was supplying large numbers of small arms to Brit Britain, France, and Russia, Tsarist hmm. Russia. The... Uh, uh, makers such as Remington, Winchester, and Colt, as well as others like Marlin, um, etc., were making large numbers of of small arms. Both of the original patterns for the for the uh, various governments that just ordered, you know, their uh, adopted, you know, uh, standard issue arms, but also some that were Native American designs, like the Model 1911 Colt pistol and this. Um, this model 1907 Winchester. The British used some. They tried it out. They were happy with it, but they were, you know, it didn't really go very far. But the French uh, definitely worked at it. They thought that it was a very good idea, but could use with a few tweaks here and there. The, um, as I said, they came out with a uh, larger magazine capacity magazine and. Uh, 10 round and then a 20 round magazine which is actually quite long because it's what they call a single stack it doesn't double right. over like a lot of modern uh, magazines work but it was found that in the trenches it was a very very handy little thing to have because again you just pull the trigger and it goes boom well just looking at it there's not a lot of places for gunk to get in there Correct. It's a very clean design. I can't see filth getting in. I mean, is this a gate where you can load right, that's, something Well, that's the right uh, eject. I actually, oh, yeah, I have one in my hand, as you can tell, yeah. as we're looking at it. It just has the ejection port. That's the only thing. So this little sticky thing, it's not a wiping stick. That's, right. That's that's how you actually charge it. There's a oh. little plunger under the barrel okay. towards the muzzle that you push down, and that Oh, and that opens the gate. Yeah, that operates the uh, the bolt. So what's this little knobby thing on the back of the... That's for actually taking it down. Oh, because uh, oh, You twist that, yeah, you turn and that, it comes and all then apart. it'll come apart. The magazine comes out fairly easily. Um, 
But as I said, it's a little, just a little five round magazine. Yeah. But with a 10 or 20 round magazine, it was uh, a very handy thing. The, the Germans were issuing, as we talked about last time, their Mauser broom handles, which had a 10 round magazine, uh, but wasn't nearly as powerful as this rifle. They're a little shorter, but they weren't as powerful. What's it cited for? Oh, it, it you, up to about 500 yards, but that's pretty optimistic. <laughs> Uh, you might be able to hit something. It'll go that far, but I right. But your accuracy, on, uh, you could hit a tank with it at 500 yards. I'm sure, but <laughs> not that it would do much to a tank. Much, yeah, no, it wouldn't do anything to a tank. But um, the French, again, as I said, were imbued with it, and so Winchester in 1918 came out with a new model of it, which is basically the same thing, except it actually had a bayonet lug on it. Oh, okay. Uh, it took a um, one of the bayonets they had made for their. Um, model 1895 uh, Lee straight pull rifle, U.S. Navy rifle, and it became a you know again it was it was very popular. It also the model 1918 model also was what they call select fire, selective fire, and that means that by switching a lever you go from either a bang 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 once every Single time you pull fire. the trigger to bang 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 every time you pull the trigger oh really you so could go full auto. you could go full auto with it empty all 10 rounds yeah or 20 oh okay once you had 20 rounds in there that was that was pretty handy how how long did it take for the army to decide that that was a dumb idea oh that was actually a great idea yeah but wouldn't they just burn through their ammo well that's always been that's always been the concern of <laughs> of armies everywhere that every time they come up with a gun that fires a little faster their first thought is oh my god the soldiers are going to burn through all their ammo and then be left defenseless um soldiers are usually smarter than that well not always but usually smarter <laughs> than that and so they um they generally don't do that but their sergeants will whap them on the head yeah and they also for all its simplicity, it's still a kind of delicate piece. So they didn't issue them generally. They only issued them to specialist troops okay. who actually knew, you know, they, they would take a little more care. So this wasn't a carm common common issue no, weapon. No, not terribly common. Anybody. Okay. They were they were popular, but uh, you had to actually be the right guy to get one. The French were actually way ahead of things. We we Americans in our hubris tend to think, ah, the French were a bunch of numbskulls. In fact, we tend to think that all Europeans were numbskulls in the First <laughs> World War because they just slaughtered each other for no apparent reason. In fact, they did a lot of pretty impressive uh, improvisation and innovation during that war. One of them was the French who were using this model 1907 Winchester came up with the idea of the assault rifle from it. Uh, the model 1918 Ribirol, I think I pronounced that right. We'll have to put that in the show notes. Um, he was a, a, a designer. He was part of the design team, which came up with the 1915 Shoshone automatic rifle, which we'll, we'll talk about one of these days, because I think it's a really cool automatic rifle. But, Ribirol came up with a design which used the basic cartridge, the 351 Winchester cartridge. They necked it down just a little bit to 8 millimeter, so they could use their armor-piercing bullets. And they issued this rifle in very small numbers because they just were getting it in, uh, in production when the war ended. Uh, but this Ribirol... 
1918 uh, had a 30-round magazine. I believe it was 30. Maybe it was 20, but I believe it was a 30-round magazine with selective fire and used this intermediate cartridge. So it, it really was, in many, many ways, the very first true modern assault rifle. So that's what makes it an assault rifle is that it it's has selective, selective fire. fire. And it's selective fire, which means it can fire fully automatic or semi-automatic uh, and uses a the specific intermediate cartridge. It's more powerful than a pistol cartridge, less powerful than a full rifle cartridge. Uh, the the reason that they have it less powerful than the full rifle cartridge is because of controllability. A full rifle cartridge like, say, a .30-06 or a 7.9 by 57 Mauser or something like that, that's got a lot of kick. And if you fire it rapidly in a light, you know, say a 10-pound rifle... It's going to be all over the place. Yeah. You, it, the muzzle goes up and so do the bullets. <laughs> and so you're mm -hmm. not going to hit anything other than, you know, right. shooting in the air and hitting something two miles down the road. With the intermediate cartridge, which the Germans revisited in World War II and developed the first issue, truly issued um, automatic... Uh, assault rifle, the Sturmgewehr, they invented the term, too, uh, 1943 and 44, which the Russians then copied with their AK-47, and then the United States uh, American designer Eugene Stoner further developed the idea uh, with his AR-15 slash M-16. Um, but it's interesting that the a lot of the design idea, or not the design idea, I should say, more the the tactical use concept actually started with this 1907 Winchester. Hmm. Um, yeah, see. And in many ways, it's it's not only the parent of the assault rifle, but it's also the parent of the a very divergent. Uh, let's see, what would you say? Um, a family of firearms, which is the M1 carbine. Uh, was used by American troops in World War II. Mm. The French were very fond of it, as I said. And the Americans looked at it and said, hey, that's a great idea. You have a rifle, or a carbine, I should say, that's lighter and handier than a full rifle, which is usually mm -hmm. about 10 pounds, 9 to 10 pounds. And, and just you know, awkward, just to, awkward carry to carry around. If you've got better things to do with your hands than carry a rifle, it's kind of awkward. Um, and so they looked at this idea, revisited it, in the late 1930s and decided we need something to give the specialist troops who can't hit the broadside of a barn with a pistol because that's not what their training is in, but really don't need a rifle either because they're doing other things. And so they developed the M1 carbine. The M1 carbine, though, again, a small, basically a powerful pistol cartridge um, and a light uh, package. And a fellow named Carbine Williams, I think it was John Williams anyway, Carbine Williams, used one of these rifles. He used the Model 1907 rifle as the basis for his development of this M1 carbine. Now, the M1 carbine uses a gas system to operate it, as does the AK-47, as does the M16, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. whereas this uh, Model 1907 is what they call blowback. There's no locking, no nothing. Just the power of the cartridge pushing back against the breech bolt um, and a heavy spring holding it together. 
is what operates it. And, um, you know, which makes it very simple and very reliable, eh, but it limits its, its power. The one I happen to have in my hand here was actually made in 1908. It's a very early version of it, um, identical to the ones they made clear up to the 1930s. It's actually kind of a classy looking rifle. It really is. It's got a lot, you know, it's, it's wood. It's very and... slim. It's it's not a big chunky monkey like some, you know, modern, you know, Bushmaster thing with rails <laughs> all over it. I mean, it's, it's Yeah, it's 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 very much a modern uh, yeah. well, a, a early 20th century sporting rifle. Yeah, yeah, it looks like something a cowboy would carry. Yeah. And in fact, there were ads for with cowboys in them, you know, showing the use of this thing. But one of the things I do want to point out is, as I said, this is a self-loading rifle. That's the, the name of it, the Winchester Model 1907 self-loading rifle. Uh, there's been a lot of talk of late about, oh, the horrors of these assault rifles, which they actually aren't. A person, a normal citizen hasn't been able to own a fully automatic weapon in the United States oh, since 1934. Yeah. Uh, you can do it. In some states, if you go through all kinds of federal well, regulations. Right. And, you have to get a special, light, very, very expensive license. To, to yeah. It costs you $200 every time you buy one, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, so the majority of these AR-15s in civilian hands, the vast majority, are semi-automatic. You have to pull the trigger once or for every shot. And this came out in 1907. It does exactly the same thing. As a modern... 07? 1907. Yeah. Exactly the same thing as the newest AR-15 will do. It's exactly the prettier. same thing. prettier. <laughs> well, this is much prettier. Um, but not as accurate. <laughs> True. This is, you know, the AR-15 is a nice modular modern thing. Uh, and this is a nice old-fashioned blued steel and walnut uh, rifle. But as far as operation goes, they're identical or virtually identical. I know a lot of people use... ARs for varmint gun. What, mm -hmm. What's the difference in power between like a modern AR and this Winchester? Modern AR is a 22 caliber. That doesn't mean it's Which a 22 rimfire. Yeah, it's, okay. It's very small, but it's got a a lot of power behind it. It's okay. shooting a. Um, I don't know what it is in grams, but in grains, which is the old English, uh, the old English weight and measure. Uh, it's a somewhere between 55, actually 40 grain on up to mm, 85 grain oh, wow. bullet at mm, the smaller weights are going up around 3,000, 3,200 feet per second. So it's got a good crack. It's zinging. Uh, and those are for shooting nasty little prairie dogs that are out there digging holes to break cattle's legs. And um, coyotes. And, coy and shooting coyotes and mm -hmm. things like that. They're eating people's chickens um, at long range. Or fairly long range, you know, up to mm -hmm. 500 yards. A rifle like this, uh, it's got a 180 grain bullet that's going at a pretty leisurely pace, like around 1,300 to 1,500 feet per second. About a good half okay. the speed. Is the bullet the same size? Uh, no, this no, is a 9 millimeter as opposed to a 5.56 millimeter. So it's millimeter. a chunkier projectile at much a slower chunkier, speed. Much chunkier, much slower. Um, I wouldn't want to get shot by either one no. of them. But um, this was definitely, a, you know, an older style, uh, an older um, attempt at getting to the same thing effectively. But the, the point is, these semi-automatic rifles have been in civilian hands for 
708 years. Was it? Yeah, 108 years now. And um, there it is. It's yeah. nothing new. Yeah. And so a lot of the, the horror of that people are registering towards these things is like, um, guys, well, this is not new. There's a, the, it seems there's a lot of misinterpretation of terms. If there's, if the word automatic is anywhere near a weapon, then people picture full auto. This is absolutely true. And again, it's been illegal in the United States to own a fully automatic weapon without yeah. going through all kinds of contortions since 1934. Yeah. You cannot do it. Uh, certainly our state, state of Washington, there's no way. And there also seems to be a tendency for people in the media and politicians who should know better. Not that anyone ever accused the average politician of being a rocket scientist. But anytime a gun is made out of black sheet metal or composite, that makes it an assault weapon. Exactly. And the definition of assault weapon is it has to be select fire. In other words, shoots fully automatic or semi-automatic, depending on mm -hmm. a flip of a switch. Mm -hmm. And it has to shoot this intermediate cartridge like the Russian M43, which is 7.62 millimeter by 39 millimeter, or the American NATO 5.56 millimeter by 45 millimeter uh, cartridge. It has to be something like that. Mm. Otherwise, it's... It's just... It's just a carbine. Okay. It's just a... You know, it's just, yeah, it's a carbine. Uh, it's not powerful enough to go hunt deer with. It's illegal to hunt deer with those things because it's not powerful enough. So when people say, oh, it's a super powerful. Well, if it was super powerful, you'd be able to hunt deer with it. Yeah. It's not. Yeah, isn't it illegal to use like an AR to hunt with because it's not yeah. powerful enough to. Right. Yeah. You're just going to irritate your animal and not kill them. Exactly. Exactly. It's not powerful enough to actually hunt deer with. It's illegal in virtually every state in the United States to hunt deer with. With a uh, with an AR-15, yeah. hmm. um, <laughs> it's not well, powerful there you enough. Go. So there you go. Okay. Anyway, so I just wanted to talk about this really cool rifle, the Winchester Model 1907. Um, again, they came out before 1910. I mean, this is over a hundred years ago. Um, a really handy little self-reloading rifle that had huge effect in paving the way for what became the standard weapons of every army in the world today. Okay. Well, awesome. Well, that wraps up our 2015 year-end special edition podcast. And uh, uh, again, if you're looking for another cool history podcast, check out Dan Snow's History Hit. And also uh, head on over to SciCon and join in the conversation there. You can join our, our um, community Slack channel for chit-chatting with other like-minded individuals who follow SciCon podcasts or those of us who work for SciCon. We'd like to also thank Brecky Thomason, our, the granddaddy of SciCon, for picking us up and adding us to his uh, podcast network earlier this year. Absolutely. We've, we've thank you. We've been very, very happy to be part of the SciCon family, met some really neat people, and it's, it means a lot to us that, uh, that somebody took the interest in us to add us to their family. So that's been a lot of fun, and it's a great community and lots of support, and we really appreciate it. Um, also, definitely recommend if you like this podcast, you'll probably like another SciCon podcast, which is 
co- um, coffee. Sorry, stutter, coffee stutter, with stutter. Jeff. <laughs> coffee with Jeff. I can talk real good. Uh, coffee with Jeff, where he takes an interesting tidbit of history or some kind of fun story and and hashes it over for about a half an hour. This week they are doing. He has uh, his wife Dawn on there with him for a special episode. So lots and lots of fun. And that's it. And, of course, by the time this gets published, it will actually be 2016 because we had some technical issues and couldn't get it up before the actual end of the year for New Year's Eve. But here we are going into 2016, and we look forward to to recording more interesting episodes. And, and if you've got topics you would love to hear Gordon talk about, please feel free to get a hold of us uh, either through history underscore files at, at twi- Twitter. So that would be at history files at Twitter or through our uh, Slack or at our website at uh, badcatshows.net. You can contact us through there or all kinds of different ways. Uh, we'll have links in the show notes for different ways you can contact us. And there we go. And pretty quick, I don't know if it's this next week or the one after, we're going to talk about MK Ultra. Yes, we had a special request from a listener who was interested in, in the the American government's secret MK Ultra program. So we're doing some research on that, and uh, we should have that either next time or the time after that, depending on how fast we can do our research. It's kind of fun, kind of interesting, something a little different. So join us next week for another exciting adventure in The History Files. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions, a proud member of the SciCon Podcast Network. For more episodes, show notes, links, or to leave comments and suggestions, visit us at SciCon.net slash THF. That's C-S-I-C-O-N slash T-H-F. We also invite you to please consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash or patreon.com slash badcatshows, where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad Cat. Meow. <laughs>